This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. The FDA kicked off 2022 by approving Pfizer's COVID booster shots for children as young as 12. Can boosted teens play a big role in slowing down the rapid spread? 2022 also starts with some relief from medical bills. There should be much fewer surprises the next time you have to check into a hospital or pay a visit to the ER. And if you're looking for a better year, just don't pay attention to what you're spending for things like gas, food and clothes. Inflation is still with us. We start with COVID vaccine booster shots for younger teenagers. Dr. David Kimberlin, professor of pediatrics and co-director of the Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Dr. Kimberlin, we've been told throughout this pandemic that kids simply aren't getting as sick from COVID. So why do kids as young as 12 need boosters? Well, there certainly has been that that thread of information across these last couple of years. But as we all have experienced, as we learn new things, some of the old understanding fades away. And, and I think over the course of the two years, as we've seen 800 or so children actually die of COVID, uh, it is now the eighth leading cause of death in children. Uh, in this country. Um, I think it kind of puts aside some of those earlier myths of it not being a big deal for children. It certainly can be. Now, that said, it's a much bigger deal in older adults. I don't mean to to be drawing a parallel there, but this is a big deal in children. And having another way to try to decrease the amount of the virus around us not only helps the individual child, that's what these booster uh, authorizations for now 12 through 15-year-olds uh, do so we're, we can boost 12 and over. Um, not only is it better for the individual, but it's better for society. Is some of this also geared toward hopefully keeping the schools open as much as possible? Because I don't think anybody wants to go back to the days where everybody's learning from home. Uh, you're definitely right about that. Um, you know that we we learned the hard way of of the the deprivation of not being in school and what the downsides of that are, and no one is seeking to go back there. There there's no doubt about it. I hope so. Um, I do think we have to have in this country a more thorough consideration and conversation about what we expect of these vaccines and boosters. Um, If we expect the the vaccine and boosters to take care of every runny nose um, caused by this virus, I think we're likely to to fail at that. I, I don't think we can ask any vaccine to be able to achieve something that remarkable. On the other hand, if we are asking these vaccines to keep us uh, from having severe disease, from being hospitalized and from dying, then that that they're already doing very well. And we know that having that booster dose will will have that kind of positive benefit, even against Omicron, which has shifted a little bit in terms of its uh, ability to evade the immune system. So if we're thinking of keeping children in school, not only is it about the child, but it's about the adults in that school as well that are the teachers and the janitors and the and the the uh, workers in the in the cafeteria and so forth. And it's by keeping everyone from getting those severe disease um, outcomes and sequelae that that hopefully this can have that kind of benefit. Dr. David Kimberlin, Professor of Pediatrics at University of Alabama, Birmingham. A new federal law goes into effect. It aims to stop surprise medical bills 
that people get at the hospital. And you might be familiar with these. You, you go to the hospital or the ER, you get care from an out-of-network doctor or other health professional without knowing that they're out-of-network, and then you get hits with the big bill because your insurance won't pay for it. So with us to discuss the changes that should save a hospitalized person thousands of dollars is Patricia Kelmar, Healthcare Campaigns Director at U.S. Perg. So how will this law work and how strong will it be? So we probably all have experienced this or know somebody who has. In fact, one in five people who've either gone to an emergency room or had surgery has received a surprise medical bill. And those are those pesky bills that come in the month after your treatment that you find out that an out-of-network doctor that you didn't choose is sending a bill for what your, your insurance hasn't covered. So those are known as out-of-network bills, and they're surprising to us because we didn't actually choose that kind of out-of-network care, um, but we're being held accountable to paying those bills. Okay, so now with this law, what happens to me? I guess the idea behind it is kind of take me out of the equation and let, let those other guys fight it out? Exactly. It's a very important consumer protection, one of the most important ones to save insured American lots of money. So about um, $40 billion every year is added to our healthcare costs because of these out-of-network bills. So from now on, starting on January 1st, if you receive care in any of these three situations, you will no longer receive an out-of-network bill. You'll be protected from it. These bills are banned. So the three areas where we won't see these bills anymore is anytime we receive emergency services. So even if we go to an in or out-of-network hospital, we won't be hit with an out-of-network bill. We'll just be paying what we normally would have paid if we were in-network, our co-pays, co-insurance, our deductibles. The other two areas that we're protected from out-of-network bills are in the situation of air transportation for emergency, like the air ambulances, the helicopters, and the airplanes. Those don't happen too frequently, but consumers have been paying tens of thousands of dollars in charges for those transportations by air. And then the third area is probably one of the most frustrating. That's when you've done everything right. You've picked your in-network hospital, you've picked your in-network doctor, but then somewhere along the way, while you're being treat treated in a hospital, you've gotten care from maybe an out-of-network anesthesiologist or the x-ray that was taken was done by an out-of-network x-ray company in your own in-network hospital. So these charges are so frustrating because we're doing what we can to stay in-network, to save costs, but then we're getting hit with these outrageous bills. So they are banned as of January 1st. Okay. Now, the terminology, I suspect, is also important, right? Because I've had this situation, maybe you did too, where you go to a doctor's office and they say, oh, yes, the, the doctor takes your insurance. That's not the same, though, or a hospital says, yes, we take your insurance. That's not the same, though, as being in network, right? Exactly. And so these are the surprise bills that we um, continue to see in your regular doctor's offices. So um, it's not 
the situation that's supposed to be covered under the No Surprises Act. So the No Surprises Act, think about those surprise billing protections in the case of kind of hospital care or outpatient hospital care or ambulatory surgery centers, you know, those out of, um, you know, not in a regular hospital setting. But for sure, consumers still have to be very careful when they go to their regular doctor's office for a regular checkup. Nowadays, we're being offered, oh, just get your blood drawn, you know, right here down the hall. Um, but what we have to ask is, doctor, is that lab that you're using part of my insurance network? Because if it's not, you will be paying hundreds of dollars for your lab work that if you had gone in-network to your local in-network lab, you would have just paid a small copay. Patricia Kilmar, Health Kim, Healthcare Campaigns Director at uh, U.S. Perg. Thanks for talking to us. Short break, doing our best to snuff out any good cheer left over from the holidays by letting you know that everything is still more expensive. If you didn't already notice inflationary prices smacking you across the face every time you stepped foot in a store in 2021, you'll definitely notice it in 2022. Yeah, things are going to cost you more. Housing, gas, food, clothes, electricity, computers. How is this going to impact the economy? William Luther is director of the American Institute of Economic Research's Sound Money Project. He's also an economics professor at Florida Atlantic University. Prices have climbed so high so quickly. Will inflation ease and, and will those prices fall just as quickly? Well, unfortunately, it's not looking like it's going to be any time soon. Um, the, the members of the Federal Open Market Committee at the, at the Federal Reserve are, are predicting that inflation will be above its 2% target all the way through 2024. So uh, the rate of inflation is likely to come down, um, but it's not going to come down as quickly as perhaps we'd hope. But we hoped initially it was going to come down quickly, as I understood it then, because the feeling was that it was a short-lived event. Uh, people were, just had this pent-up money. Uh, they, they wanted to spend because uh, they were going back out into the world. And even with the Omicron uh, variant, people are still going about, for the most part, their business. So why isn't it going back to normal in quotation marks? Well, we really have two things going on. The, the first thing is what economists call uh, real supply disturbances. Um, you know, uh, we, we stopped producing um, uh, for, for a good two months, uh, and it turns out that if, you, if you're not cutting down trees for two months, then roughly a year later, the lumber is pretty expensive. Um, those kind of real supply disturbances, they, they eventually work themselves out, and they tend to do so pretty quickly. Uh, as that supply recovers, prices come back down. Um, but we're also dealing with, with another factor, a nominal spending uh, factor. You know, the, the government did a lot over the last two years to prop up incomes, um, to, to help businesses, uh, to, to prevent those businesses from going bankrupt. Um, they've, they've provided assistance to, to households. Um, and in the process, they've, they've boosted nominal spending a lot, probably more than they expected to. And that money is out in the economy now. It's circulating. And, and as a consequence, it's driving up prices. So although those, those supply disturbances work themselves out pretty quickly, that, that nominal spending that's been boosted is, is likely to persist for some time until, until the monetary authority uh, takes action. Yeah. And what does the Fed plan to be doing over at least the, the short term as we head through 
this year? Well, they they have talked about uh, raising rates a little sooner than expected. They're also going to um, uh, see their balance sheet shrink. But the big thing that they've that they've done so far is just communicate to the market that they recognize that inflation is high and that they're prepared to take steps to bring that back down. Again, I don't think that they're going to to take those steps as quickly as as many of us would like. So those prices are likely to remain elevated. For, for quite a while, um, but at least so far they've they've kept inflation from you know from getting uh, out of hand to the extent that it was in, in say the 1970s or something like that. We don't have a big concern that there will be double digit inflation uh, over the next year, uh, but we we do have a pretty a pretty big concern that inflation will remain elevated over the next couple years. Now, it's not all bad news, is it? I mean, if you owe money and you have to pay money back, you're paying it back with cheaper dollars, aren't you? Well, that's right. So um, if, if you've borrowed and the, and the inflation uh, that we've experienced over the last year wasn't expected when you agreed to the interest rate in that loan, then you're paying back with dollars that are worth less than you expected they would be worth and, and worth less than the, uh, the lender expected they would be worth as well. And so it is a, a boost for, for borrowers. That doesn't do much for the economy as a whole, of course, because for every borrower, there is a lender. And so one person gains at the expense of the other. Um, it, is, it is beneficial for the government, of course. The government is a, a very big borrower. Um, and so to some extent, uh, we are wiping out some of the, 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 the debt that the government has incurred. Um, but again, that's, that's not doing much for the economy as a whole. That's just a transfer. William Luther, the Sound Money Project at the American Institute of Economic Research and professor, Florida Atlantic University. We end today's coronavirus daily with a quick trip inside your body. That's where researchers at Cedars-Sinai went to get a better idea of how our immune systems respond to coronavirus infections. They hope to find some better data about what is causing those scary, long COVID symptoms. Turns out that the virus really does a number on your immune system. Cedars researchers found that even in people infected with COVID who had extremely mild cases or who were totally asymptomatic, immune systems were still hurriedly producing antibodies in excess, something a healthy body is not supposed to be doing. Now, one researcher described the phenomenon as COVID traumatizing immune systems on its way out of bodies. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us and others at the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.